Greetings, friends, comrades, citizens, proletarians of every persuasion, and homo sapiens everywhere. You are listening to Democracy or Die, a force for authentic democracy, as it was understood by those humans who actually coined the word long ago and far away, not as a swamp of corruption, intrigue, and deceit, but an orderly, impartial, transparent process in which every citizen has an equal voice and money is irrelevant. And I'm your host, instigator, fellow traveler, and collaborator, Paul Rosenfeld, the diminutive and graying Spartacus of the wage slaves, a worker determined to live in an authentic democracy or die trying. And welcome, friends, to this, my very first podcast, an electronic message in a bottle I cast out through the infinite ocean of zeros and ones, praying that my voice and your ears will magically be connected, hoping against hope, not that you will rescue me from a desert island, but that we will save one another from the monstrosity of a government which reveres the rights of property while ignoring the needs of human beings. Let me begin with an apology for testing your credulity. I do realize many of us gave up long ago on the possibility of honest, fair, transparent government. The smart money says there's zero hope of such a miracle ever occurring. So who am I to suggest that the seas might part and we wage slaves will be led to a promised land of living wages and universal health care? Well, I prefer not to dwell on my non-existent credentials, but let's be honest. You've been wrong before. And let's be fair. The prognosticators and pundits who tell you what is and isn't possible are typically full of shit. The smart money said there were WMDs in Iraq. Mortgage derivatives were a triple-A security. And Donald Trump could never be elected. Smart money isn't actually that smart, but it does represent the voice of capital. Not revolutionary, but reactionary. Cynicism never goes out of style, in part because it supports the status quo, if only by default. If there's no hope for change, then there's no point in fighting. Well, I'm here to tell you that real democracy isn't an impossible dream. It's merely a lost art. It existed once, briefly, several thousand years ago, but then disappeared. Now, every two years, we go looking in the wrong place, a voting booth, when it's actually right under our noses, waiting for us to notice. Dorothy wasn't really trapped in Oz. She had the power to return to Kansas all along. She just didn't know it. And social justice is absolutely within reach. You have only to consider the facts, neglected and forlorn though they may be. The truth will set you free, or you can close this window. It's your call. So yes, I am apparently some sort of self-styled democratic messiah. And if you weren't suspicious of that, I wouldn't respect you a bit. 
When people show up at my door selling either politics or religion, I rarely give them the time of day, let alone hard currency, and I'd expect no less from you. So before I can subvert, convert, indoctrinate, and enlist you, we'll need to get better acquainted. I'll have to gain your confidence. Missionaries typically offer a free meal before the sermon, and so I, in lieu of dinner, will offer a modestly entertaining story about how the search for democracy has nearly killed me several times, actually incarcerated me, and almost driven me to bankruptcy and divorce. I suppose it's a cautionary tale about the trouble you may get in if you read too many old books. But I also think it's at least as entertaining as a lot of other stories you may actually have paid good money for. Just as African missionaries sought to convert cannibals, so I hope to rid you of your uncivilized, hyper-partisan ways by introducing you to ideas from books even older than the Bible. Admittedly, in some cases, the man-eaters may have dined on those well-meaning adventurers, and you conceivably could show up at my home with rakes and torches. I have already received some death threats, and perhaps that was just the beginning. But I'll take my chances. I've been through a great deal of unpleasantness already on account of my unfashionable ideas, and I'll just have to muddle on. It's what I do. Eventually, of course, I intend to start proselytizing and even hit you up for some legal tender. But I'm waiting for the right moment and wouldn't dream of asking before you are ready. I'll be gentle and we'll proceed cautiously. So let's get on to the story. A strange and twisted tale about a thoroughly boring, law-abiding, middle-aged suburbanite who just happened to fall off the edge of the world one day. The following is a true story. Prologue. In October of 2018, the federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York described me as a terrorist and... Reuters Wire Service called me a suicide bomber. But this is preposterous hyperbole, like saying that the smoke jumper who sets a backfire to save a virgin forest is an arsonist. A sober, safety-conscious family man, I was engaged in an act of high-stakes, non-violent civil disobedience, hardly the same thing as wanton bloodshed. If I miscalculated and the project blew up in my face, metaphorically speaking, this doesn't alter the fact that my motives were pure as the driven snow. However, the mud stuck, and I spent the next year in federal prison. Now that I'm out and have access to the Internet, I'd like you to review my case. I hope you'll judge me less harshly than the federal prosecutor and perhaps even join me on my quixotic quest to overhaul the American System of Government. Chapter 1. From Car to Incarceration, wherein my evil plot to promote democracy is exposed and I am brought to justice. When the police stopped me on the drive home from work, it was no great surprise. I'd been fearing this ever since I bought eight pounds of Gox brand cannon-grade black powder, i.e. gunpowder, over the internet several months previously. 
I'd made that purchase with heart and mouth, only after concluding it an unavoidable risk. It was an obvious flag for the NSA, but such a transaction was not unreasonable for an amateur pyrotechnician, and I had been a frequenter of the Skylighter, home hobbyist pyrotechnic website. Sometimes middle-aged men such as myself, bored with their day-to-day, find excitement in the fabrication of display-grade fireworks. There's nothing unlawful in this pursuit, and the fact that my fireworks project included a 50 caliber bullet with my name on it was only a little odd. However, I'd also purchased an antique muzzle-loading pistol, and presumably, so far as any electronic algorithms could discern, might well be a fan of both fireworks and revolutionary era reenactment. There must be thousands of Americans who fit this profile. I hoped the NSA wouldn't deem me worthy of closer inspection. I was, after all, an otherwise respectable individual. Prior to that purchase, I'd attempted to fabricate black powder from scratch, figuring this made me look more like a home hobbyist. Surely no terrorist would go through the tedious process of fabricating black powder when it's far simpler to make bona fide explosives out of everyday ingredients from Lowe's. But those efforts had fizzled, literally. Gunpowder isn't really an explosive. It's more accurately described as a propellant, sending bullets and cannonballs whizzing on their merry trajectories. At best, it's a low-grade explosive, but for my purposes, that was quite good enough. I wasn't building a bomb, after all, only a bit of fireworks. However, the difference between commercial-grade black powder and my own amateur efforts was so dramatic, I feared my fireworks would be a disappointing dud, and that wouldn't do. Hence the decision to make a purchase which might conceivably invite government scrutiny. So, I was already walking on eggshells in October 2018 and might well have prepared for the possibility of apprehension. Some planning for this event could conceivably have made a world of difference. Oh well, my bad. For 10 minutes, I sat on a guardrail in Palisades, New York, on a warm early autumn afternoon, while the police and FBI, who clogged the shoulder with their vehicles, decided how to proceed. During this brief interlude, while I still possessed some limited freedom of movement, I might have transmitted press releases and put my website online, getting my side of the story out. But instead, I merely took my last gasps of outdoor air for nearly a year, like a deer in the headlights. Meanwhile, the Justice Department and news media suffered from no such paralysis. They were already busy fabricating the illusion that I am a vicious terrorist, or at the very least, a dangerous and deranged individual, a menace to society, certainly no one you'd ever listen to. As it turns out, the NSA wasn't actually the cause of my undoing. In typical fashion, it was my own trusting and romantic nature which sabotaged the venture. I abhor telemarketers and car salesmen as much as the next guy, but when it comes to journalists... I liked to imagine anyone professing this title had integrity.
I did, after all, grow up during the era of Watergate and the Pentagon Papers. The press was supposed to be a friend of free speech, not an arm of the thought police. I'd communicated my plans for a suicidal public fireworks display in confidence to a freelance cameraman, a member of the National Association of Press Photographers, imagining he might document my dramatic act of civil disobedience. To my mind, this was the offer of a lifetime for any true red-blooded photojournalist, an epic assignment to be photographed guerrilla style in a few brief moments on the National Mall at dawn and then sold anonymously to the networks for a fortune in Bitcoin. I foolishly imagined I could rely either on his professional ethics or, barring that, his greed. The man had been to Iraq and Afghanistan where he followed American teenagers sacrificing life and limb for oil. Surely he'd respect a middle-aged man's right to free speech in the U.S. I explained in great detail the years of thought which had brought me to this point and assured him that as a heavily insured older man, old enough to be his father probably, I was perfectly comfortable with the sacrifice. Yes, of course it was an extreme act, but it was my first amendment right. I expected him to respect that. This was my reasoning anyhow. Instead, he promptly ratted me out to the FBI. I can only conjecture regarding his motives, but have since concluded following this episode that journalistic ethics are a joke and the protection of sources is really nothing more than a quaint fiction like chivalry or omerta. The fourth estate is officially dead. I suppose it died decades ago. With a little more healthy cynicism, my plans might have prevailed, but that's okay. I should really thank the man who sent me to prison. As someone who seldom gets out, my time in federal lockup provided quite the exotic low-budget vacation. The food was revolting, accommodations horrific, and scenery grim, but I made so many new friends, fine folks I'd never have met otherwise. A lifetime of memories, and ever so broadening. All snark aside, I met many wonderful people in prison, and I hope to be reunited with some of them one day under more pleasant circumstances. There was much government manpower arrayed on the highway shoulder, but as of yet no one has spoken to me other than the town cop who'd pulled me over. He'd instructed me to exit my vehicle, but offered no excuse for this interruption of my daily routine. I should by now have been downing a beer in the backyard with my dogs on any ordinary day. Eventually, he invited me into his cruiser for a ride to the Orangetown Police Department. I ventured that this was, perhaps, a case of mistaken identity, but he politely refused any further information, merely offering that they had some questions for me. We made the five-minute ride in silence while I admired his assault rifle, handily stored in a plexiglass locker in the back seat, and wondered at what point suburban cops started carrying military weaponry. Arriving at the town hall, I was escorted to an interview room where a troika of law enforcement squares, 
police, FBI, and prosecutor initiated my interrogation, although no one was calling it that. In fact, they never read me my rights, and everyone was incredibly nice. More uh, meet and greet than some sort of criminal affair. And I was too foolish to comprehend the purpose of this politeness. But at least the main question was finally answered. It was revealed that my journalist had violated the confidence bestowed upon him. These gentlemen were fully aware of my fireworks project. They wanted to know what I was about, and not believing myself a criminal, I freely obliged. Again, I'd like to stress that no one ever read me my rights. Funny, don't you think? At a moment when I should have had my mouth firmly shut, I blithely blundered ahead. I imagined the logic of my position was unassailable, a defense unto itself. This sort of naivete is a thing I've suffered from my entire life, a congenital condition, I suppose, like Down syndrome or autism. Asked to explain why I felt the need to end my life in a ball of fire on the National Mall, I did my best to explain. In hindsight, I deeply regret the decision to speak freely with these so-called public servants. I wish I'd prepared a statement in advance for the press and prosecutor. There would have been far less leeway for lying. If I'd had the presence of mind to plan ahead, this is what I might have written. We live under a system of government seldom scrutinized. The element of informed consent, essential to any non-coercive agreement, is utterly absent. I never consciously assented to these political arrangements. Did you? If a plurality of propertied voters once ratified the Constitution, this means little. My children are not my slaves, and surely I am not beholden to men who lived centuries ago. That I am periodically permitted to choose between two rival gangs of snake oil salesmen also does not confer legitimacy. The condemned man who decides between noose and firing squad will die as surely either way. I never consented to the system, and I will no longer passively submit. We call it a democracy, but that is a misconception. The people who coined this word knew better. To confound universal suffrage with democracy is like saying buffalo are only free when they stampede, or perhaps that every lemming actually desires to drown. We live under a plutocracy. Free elections aren't free. They're bought and paid for by the rich in the manner of a cattle drive or sheep herding contest. The wealthy pay the piper, and we dance to their tune, no matter how awful the music. Reasonable alternatives, authentically democratic, do exist, but are never entertained. This reigning dysfunction holds a place of religious orthodoxy. Authentic dissent is not so much unlawful as unimaginable. The rich 
have even told us how we may think. I'm not anxious to die, but gladly would, if this served to initiate a thoughtful national debate on the subject of real democratic reform. To that end, I prepared an act of suicidal civil disobedience for the National Mall on Election Day. If it bleeds, it leads. There's no denying. But the only life I sought to end was mine. My plans were cautiously made, and I'd gladly submit them to the scrutiny of an impartial public. I am neither a murderer or a madman, only a concerned citizen who's had enough. If the representatives of law enforcement and the press suggest otherwise, as they likely will, I only ask that you give me the benefit of the doubt they are attempting to distract you from the real issue at hand. Sincerely, Paul Rosenfeld, sortitiannow.org. This statement is expressive of the sentiments I attempted to convey to the three guardians of public safety sitting across from me. However, I expect it all went in one ear and out the other. These are not individuals well-suited for independent thought. A fourth officer entered the interrogation room and I should have taken my cues from him. He was the lead bomb tech, a swaggering sort who clearly based his behavior on celluloid role models. If he was the tough guy, hero in this scene, then obviously I was the deranged punk bad guy. The FBI was executing a search warrant on my home. Bomb guy was there to query me on whether to cut the red wire or blue on my high-powered bomb. He started the conversation by leveling horrible threats if my cooperation were anything less than accurate and thorough. I didn't take it personally, though, because I could see he was only posturing for an imaginary 35-millimeter camera, and that should have been my indication for everything that would happen going forward. I was now a stock character in a B-movie these guys had shot a hundred times before, if I expected to rewrite the script, I had another thing coming. After several hours, these public servants had all they needed. In my deluded state, I actually imagined I'd be released now, on my own recognizance, to face some relatively minor charges at a future date. After all, they were only fireworks, and I'd given a great deal of thought to public safety. This was about the First Amendment, not terrorism. I had so much to learn. Freedom would not be forthcoming, but my pliability was rewarded with a Big Mac and fries. In prison, the golden arches represent the pinnacle of eau cuisine, but sadly, I had no appetite for this delicacy. I wasn't broken in yet. After a round of fingerprinting and photography, I was introduced to my very first cell, a metal cot, mylar blanket, and little else. I was desperately in need of a shower and a beer, but this was not to be. It was a week on the shower and a year 
on the beer after a most unrestful night my first full day in captivity started with a perp walk and court appearance dirty disheveled and handcuffed i was paraded in front of the press to hear my state charges i now discovered that i was a major menace to society the charges added up to 20 years and the full gravity of my situation began to sink in. My friends from the FBI then drove me across the Tappan Zee to the federal courthouse in White Plains. As we crossed the Hudson, I wondered what my chances were for exiting the car and vaulting the railing while wearing handcuffs. The 200-foot drop looked terribly attractive. 20 years for a guy in his late 50s? This was a life sentence. No thanks. Before a second judge, inside a more imposing courtroom, I was charged with further heinous crimes and taken for another round of photos, fingerprints, and DNA swabbing. My self-esteem was really in the toilet by now. Good intentions notwithstanding, so far as the rest of the world was concerned, I was an evil terrorist. And all this on an empty stomach. I'd had nothing to eat since that Big Mac I'd refused the day before. But forget about that. Can we take just a moment to discuss the two sets of criminal charges? Are there other nations where such a permanent state of double jeopardy is tolerated? At any given moment in this country, there are two packs of hungry lawyers circling the hapless citizen who dares step out of line. Stick to the well-trod path and you should probably be safe. But if you dare to think and act for yourself, you're forever in peril from two separate gangs of penal predators. I met many people during my stay with the federal government, either on their way to or from state prison. In our country, apparently, it's not enough to pay once for your sins. In a great many instances, you must suffer twice. Land of the free, if you say so. Sounds like a police state to me. For what it's worth, the ancient Athenians, who invented democracy, had no use for a single public prosecutor, let alone two. Their courts were easily accessible to all. Lawyers didn't exist, and the aggrieved citizen could readily pursue justice by taking his case directly before a jury of his peers. I think the Greeks would have seen this position for what it is, the creation of an official Frankenstein, a legally sanctioned, suited monster who will happily imprison entire villages or neighborhoods in the pursuit of naked self-aggrandizement trampling the truth every step of the way. In my own particular case, I will not definitely accuse the prosecutor of lying, but I will say that deliberately misleading statements and false inferences were central to his cause. For most of us non-suit-wearing sorts, that's pretty much the same thing. In a less hypocritical system, such behavior would be grounds for disbarment. Where does the time go? Tough to say. 
It was a long day of slow, subterranean, shackled shuffling, like many to follow. But in the end, I finally made it to my first real prison, the Valhalla Correctional Facility. I and the other detritus from the bowels of the White Plains Federal Courthouse had our shackles removed and made ourselves at home in the filthy bullpen while we waited for management to find us cells. It was evening now, and I'd eaten nothing all day. Twenty-four hours into my new lifestyle, and I was already beginning to understand what I'd passed up the day before with that burger. One of my fellow bovines had greater concerns, however. The arresting officers had given him a special tenderizing treatment earlier, and now his condition was ripening. He lifted his shirt to show us the massive bruising he'd incurred. His frequent pleas to the CO for medical attention fell on deaf ears. Eventually, however, he collapsed outright. I believe he must have had some significant internal bleeding. This event led to the appearance of a gurney and the disappearance of our comrade. They either took him to a hospital or a landfill. Neither would surprise me. However, in prison you have to look out for yourself. So I didn't waste too much time wondering. I'd finally scored a bologna sandwich, and that was all that mattered. Belly foolish, or at least better than empty, I donned my new orange jumpsuit and followed the CO to the unit where they keep the violent crazies. Ever the misfit, after six decades on this planet, I'd finally found my rightful place. I did a crazy thing, undeniably. But does this really make me a crazy person? We live in an insane world. I prefer to think I'm simply fighting fire with fire, both literally and figuratively. The conventional avenues of civil discourse proved futile, so I was forced to improvise. Those who know me will attest that the dramatics were entirely out of character. I'm not a person who likes to make waves. I would enlist you in my quest to resurrect authentic democracy from the faded pages of ancient history, and I know this may seem far-fetched, but I don't think it an unreasonable objective. Not insane, not crazy. Perhaps my means are suspect but my ends are surely beyond reproach. Still, I do realize how things look, what with me being on the wrong side of a cell door and all. To first appearances, I do look very much like that previously mentioned stock character from a B-movie, the fanatic bomb-building nutcase. The FBI has decided that Theodore Kaczynski the Unabomber of 80s and 90s fame, is my closest competitor in crime. It seems, for the duration of the Republic, that I'll be sharing space on a government computer server right next to a guy who killed three and maimed 23. Perhaps there really is no such thing as bad publicity, but I'm definitely putting that theory to the test. 
I have my work cut out for me. But the comparison with TK is actually so laughable, I think it may serve my cause to illuminate this absurdity. Yes, we're both white guys with manifestos, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. His terrorism, actual terrorism with blood and body parts, was, I believe, an attempt to incite a general rebellion with the absurd hope of overthrowing Western civilization. My absolutely nonviolent intention is to initiate a project for the repair and improvement of the American Republic. A failed state, by many measures, but it's all we've got. An anarchist I ain't. But no one at the FBI ever bothered to actually read my manifesto. They were much too busy misrepresenting my modest pyrotechnic device as a high-powered bomb. Bureau hacks. Happy to score cheap points in the war on terror. Thinking is above their pay grade. Go team! If there must be a comparison between myself and some alleged criminal, let's be fair. My alter ego ought to be John Brown, a man who possessed both a true moral compass and the willingness to do the right thing at any cost. Unsurprisingly, the state executed him for treason. Brown fought for the African-American in chains. I'm fighting for every human in bondage to the empire of capital. No, I'm not a communist. Lord, no. But commerce has its limits. When government becomes a commodity, the bill of sale includes our souls. I want mine back. Of course, I don't really think I could fill John Brown's shoes, but this is a far fairer comparison than Theodore Kaczynski. The truth is, I'm neither a criminal or a hero. I'm just a citizen who's fed up. My nearest credible comparison, I hope, is with Joseph Welch, the man who stood up against Joe McCarthy's red-baiting witch hunt in 1954 and finally brought the bully down. Like him, I simply refused to go along with the herd and objected publicly. I will not countenance the charade that our government possesses any true moral legitimacy. It doesn't. The problem isn't the commies, socialists or anarchists, not Hillary or even Trump. The real menace which threatens our society is the fact that our democracy isn't really a democracy, and it never was. So long as money remains the primary determinant for who holds office, we will continue to live in a plutocracy. And how's that working out? But forget the historical figures. Let's go with literature. If there's one character who sums up my situation, it's the child from the Emperor's New Clothes. Like them, 
I'm merely pointing out an obvious fact, plain to every common person, that our so-called democracy is nothing of the sort. The political class may be mesmerized by their bullshit, but most of us ordinary folk know better. I did a thing bizarre, and definitely not in my best interest. That, by contemporary standards, makes me crazy. But I had my motives. No one was hurt, or likely to be. But the government says I'm a criminal all the same. I think sanity and legality may both be overrated. They seem more questions of fashion than a fact and have little to do with any objective criteria. I wish to live in a real democracy, even if this is not currently a fashionable idea. It's not a goal likely to be achieved by coloring inside of the lines. Well, that's all for now, friends. I hope you are at least modestly intrigued and that you'll tune in soon for my second podcast. Until then, friends.